0: book of Acts. Uh, we actually passed the halfway point a couple of weeks ago now, so we are in Acts 16 this morning making our way through. This summer we'll actually pick up some speed and we'll be tackling some larger chunks of scripture, so I suspect the second half will not last as long as the first. But nevertheless, this morning we're in Acts chapter 16, preaching through the Word of God verse by verse because we want the Word of God to set the agenda. Let me pray and then we'll get to it. Uh, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together today as the church We know that this is not a privilege we should take lightly. As we've been reminded even in the last couple of months, turmoil in the world is more present than we know. There's no guarantee that we would be able to do this every Sunday, but we're grateful that we can today. And so, Father, we're thankful that we can gather here in peace today, and we can have an expectation that as we're gathered, we will be able to freely proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And we pray that's exactly what would happen today. That as we open your word, that we would be faithful as a church to point to you. Lord, we pray that you would work through the preaching of your word today. We pause here and we pray because we know that for that to happen, it will be your work. It's not any preparation I've done or any preparation those who are listening have done. It is a work of your spirit for your word to land with a punch. And so we pray that today that's exactly what would happen, that your spirit would be at work and that you would do something spectacular in us today. Oh, Lord, please be gracious to us. It's in Christ's name we pray all this. Amen. Well, for the better part of my first 19 years, I chased after everything I was supposed to chase after. or more accurately, I chased after everything that I thought I was supposed to chase after. I pursued popularity, success in sports, relationships, academic achievements, leadership positions. On top of that, I threw in a little bit of religion as well went to church nearly every Sunday. I even attended church camp on one occasion. And in those first 19 years, I have to be honest in saying I was pretty happy with my life. There were moments where I felt the emptiness of what I was pursuing, but by and large, I liked my life and I was confident about the direction I was headed in. I was certain that better days were ahead, and those better days in my mind entailed more money and more popularity and more success. But all of that got flipped upside down in the fall of 1999 and it got flipped upside down by a math equation. That fall, I met a man named Mark Walter. Mark shared the good news of Jesus Christ with me. Now, I'd heard about Jesus before that fall. In fact, I'd heard a lot about him. Not everything was accurate that I'd heard, but I'd heard a lot about Jesus. And I would have even identified as a Christian leading up to that moment. But when Mark opened the Bible with me and shared with me about the person and work of Jesus Christ, it was then that for the first time I realized my works would never rescue me. It was only what Christ had done. Jesus had died on the cross for my sins, and he'd been raised three days later it was only by turning to him and saving faith that I could be rescued. That was the day that my eyes were open to the truth that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. Furthermore, in that same moment, I realized that Jesus was greater than all those other things that I've been pursuing. He was greater than popularity. He's greater than success in sports. greater than academic achievement. Greater than relationships. Greater than positions of power. He is greater than everything else. And that's what I mean when I say a math equation turned my life upside down. In elementary school, you learn about greater than, less than math equations. Eight is greater than five. Twelve is less than seventeen. Learning those types of equations in elementary school, it's important, it's helpful, because you learn what things are more valuable than others. For example, eight dollars is greater than five dollars. That's good to know. But the one equation that matters most, and I know it's probably not technically a math equation, but it is an equation nonetheless, is the equation of what is greater than everything else. And that's the question I would ask you this morning. What would you say is greater than everything else? For the first 19 years of my life, I would have put a lot of different things in the greater than position. Depending upon the day, I would have inserted popularity, or success, or achievements, or relationships, or power, or money, as if those things were greater than everything else. But in the fall of 1999, by the grace of God, in that conversation with Mark, the light bulb finally came on for me. Jesus is the answer to the equation. Jesus is greater than everything else, and only in pursuing him and only in chasing after him can you find true and lasting joy. That's the equation that changes everything. But here's the thing even though I've known that to be true for nearly 23 years now, I still have to fight daily to remind myself of that truth because I'm still prone to put other things in the greater than position. As I get older, it's things like my family, my job, my reputation, my comfort, my security, my safety. So listen, I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey. Maybe you came to the conclusion a long time ago that Jesus is greater than everything else and you live that way nearly every single day. Or maybe you have yet to come to that conclusion. Or maybe you waffle back and forth. Whatever the case is, here's what I want to remind you of this morning. Jesus is greater than everything else. And we're reminded of that again and again in our passage today. So I said, let's get to it. My prayer this morning is that we would leave here thoroughly convinced That Jesus is better. So if you would, please stand now. Acts 16, verses 16 to 40. Standing is just a simple way we can remind ourselves that we are reading the Word of God, and as such, it is due our reverence. So you can follow along as I read. The words will be on the screen. You can follow along in your own Bible if you want or on your phones. But let's read starting here in Acts 16, verse 16. The Word of God says this. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination "...and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, "'These men are servants of the Most High God, "'who proclaim to you the way of salvation.' "'And this she kept doing for many days. "'Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and, said to this, excuse me, "'turned and said to the Spirit, "'I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her.' "'And it came out that very hour. "'But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, "'they seized Paul and Silas "'and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers.' when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. When they'd inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they'd seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So if you're looking for a passage that has a bit of everything in it, this is your passage. There's the casting out of a demonic spirit, a severe beating, a miraculous earthquake, a non-escape from prison, a near suicide, a dramatic conversion, and a confrontation with government officials. If you had a bingo card of exciting things that happen in the book of Acts, this passage alone would check off a lot of spots on the bingo card. But listen, as much as I appreciate the dramatic action that we read about here in Acts 16, I'm convinced that the dramatic action is pointing us in one direction, and it's pointing us to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Or again, to say it another way using our math terminology, this passage is pointing us to the reality that Jesus is greater than everything else. And both the events that take place in this passage and in the decisions that are made, the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ and the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ are seen in a multitude of ways here. More specifically, I would make the argument this morning that the supremacy of Christ is seen in at least six different areas in this passage here in Acts 16. Let's just walk through them, starting with the first. Jesus is greater than the spiritual forces of darkness. And because we live in a secular culture that's largely driven by reason and logic, we tend to discount the spiritual nature of the world. We act as if demons and spiritual forces simply don't exist. But listen, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, the Bible is clear. There are spiritual forces of darkness that do exist, and they're waging war against our souls. Satan is real, and his demons are too. And in this particular passage, we see that reality on display. An evil spirit overtakes this slave girl and gives her a spirit of divination. She was a soothsayer, one who could predict the future. And apparently she could make quite a bit of money doing so. Or more accurately, she could make quite a bit of money for someone else doing so. And she was empowered to do this by dark spiritual forces. Now it's interesting that the evil spirit that was giving this girl her powers is also able to give her the ability to recognize that Paul and Silas were servants of the Most High God. The demon also gives the ability to correctly identify that Paul and Silas are proclaiming the way of salvation. Now, in light of what we read in the Gospels, this is not surprising, because throughout the Gospels, demons correctly identify who Jesus is. In fact, James 2.19 tells us that demons believe there is a God, but implied in that James 2 passage is they shudder at that reality because they refuse to submit to his authority. So, it's not surprising here in Acts 16 that the demon gives this girl the ability to rightly identify who the disciples are and what they're doing. Demons are not ignorant about Jesus or about what his servants are up to. It's just that they despise Jesus and his servants, which inevitably leads to confrontation. And that's what we see here in Acts 16. After being followed for many days by the demon possessed girl, Paul becomes greatly annoyed. In one way or another, the demon-possessed girl was becoming a distraction to their gospel ministry. And so in the name of Jesus Christ, Paul commands this evil spirit to come out. And as verse 18 informs us, the spirit comes out of the girl that very hour. And in that act, we are reminded of something very clearly. Jesus is, in fact, greater than the spiritual forces of darkness. Understand this. It wasn't that Paul said something magical in verse 18. He didn't have a magical formula to cast out demons here. Rather, what happened is that Paul relied on the Spirit of God. And in the name of Jesus Christ, he commanded the demon to come out. In other words, what we're saying is this it wasn't that Paul rescued this girl from her demon oppression, it was the powerful working of Christ that rescued her. And in that is a great encouragement for us spiritual forces of darkness may be real, but Jesus is greater than those spiritual forces of darkness. A few weeks back, a couple stopped by the church. Never seen him before, haven't seen him since. After talking with them for about 30 seconds, it was obvious. They were convinced their house was haunted by a ghost, and they wanted me to do something about it. I think they are expecting me to go over to their house and perform some sort of ghost exorcism ceremony. Now, here's the thing. I don't have a playbook as a pastor to know what to do in that situation. I don't have a book where I can turn to page 23 and says, okay, if someone comes in saying their house is haunted by a ghost, do this. I don't have that book. So in that moment, I just prayed, okay, God, please give me wisdom here. I don't know what to do. And so in the end, what I told him is this. I said, listen, I don't know what's going on in your house. Maybe it's just the wind. Maybe there's a raccoon in your attic. I don't know. But I do know the spiritual forces of darkness are real. And it's possible there's something going on in your house. I don't know. And if that's the case, the only way that will be overcome, if there is a spiritual force of darkness, is through the power of Jesus Christ because he alone has authority over all spiritual forces of darkness. And so I encouraged them, what you need to do is not perform some elaborate ceremony. You need to pray and ask God for help. And then I shared the good news of Christ with them. I shared the gospel with them, that Christ triumphed over the spiritual forces of darkness on the cross. And then I prayed and asked God that in the name of Jesus, he would drive out whatever evil force there was, if there was one. And then when that happened, I prayed that the couple would then turn to Jesus in saving faith, having seen his power. That was my prayer. Now, I don't know if that was the right way to handle the situation or not. Maybe you're very experienced in those situations, and you would say, you should have done this. You might be right. I don't know. What I do know is this. Spiritual forces of darkness are real. So it's possible there was something going on. But what I also know, and this is the more important piece, is that Jesus is greater than the spiritual forces of darkness. And that's the reality that they needed to hear about that day more than anything else. They needed to hear about Christ's supremacy. Listen, this is a truth we need to remember also. If we're honest, sometimes it's a little bit scary to think about spiritual forces of darkness. In fact, I would guess some of you in this room probably don't like that we're talking about the topic this morning. But here's the reality. The one who's in us, if we are followers of Christ, Christ is in us. The one who's in us, Jesus, is greater than the one who's in the world, Satan. So we don't have to be afraid. Jesus is greater than the spiritual forces of darkness. Now, as it turns out, Jesus' supremacy over the spiritual forces of darkness causes some problems in this passage. And that brings us to the second area where we see the supremacy of Christ in Acts 16. And the second area is simply this. Jesus is greater than money. Now, there's something ugly that happens in Acts 16. A young girl is set free from her demon oppression, and rather than everyone rejoicing, there are some who are angered. And to understand why they're angered, we need to go back again to verse 16. Again, look at the way the passage begins in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So the slave owner's girls were becoming rich because of her ability that had been given to her by an evil spirit. And so the fact that the evil spirit is driven out and the fact that they're making money because of this evil spirit explains explains why they respond the way they do in verses 18 to 21. Verse 18 again, And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So Luke uses a play on words in verses 18 and 19. In verse 18, he talks about the demon coming out of the girl. In verse 19, he talks about the hope of gain, leaving the owners. In the Greek, the verb that's used in both of those sentences is the same. Essentially, Luke says this, When the demon went out, the hope of money went out too. And this is what makes the owners so upset. Rather than being concerned about their own salvation and considering the words that Paul and Silas were proclaiming, Or for that matter, rather than being being concerned about the welfare of this slave girl, instead they're only concerned about one thing, the bottom line. Now, the slave owners bring the case to the magistrates under the guise that Paul and Silas are disturbing the peace, and they're advocating customs that went against Roman law. But Luke's language would indicate that those charges were nothing but a smokescreen. The real issue and the real reason why the slave owners dragged Paul and Silas to the magistrates is because their golden goose has been cooked. Right? They loved money more than they loved truth. They loved money more than they loved others. And so when their hope of gain was taken, this is what infuriates them. And in their actions, I think we're reminded clearly of something Jesus taught. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And unfortunately for the slave owners, they chose money. But I wonder, I wonder how many of us would have made the same choice. Imagine this scenario with me. Let's say that we're five or ten years down the road. We'll just say it's 2032, and the cultural pressure on Christians has only increased in the next ten years. And 2032 has gotten to the point where if you belong to a church that actually teaches what the Bible says about sexuality or marriage or gender or other cultural hot-button issues, you are no longer welcome in the secular work world. On top of that, if you're willing to hold to what the Bible teaches on those issues and you're willing to proclaim them in the public space, you are also no longer welcome. In other words, what I'm saying is this. Getting employed or staying employed in 2032 is really difficult if you belong to a Bible-believing church or if you hold to the Bible beliefs in the public square. So given that scenario, my question is, what would you do? Would you stay with the church that holds fast to what the Bible teaches? Would you stick with your biblical convictions in the public square? Or would you leave for a church that is not quite as controversial? And maybe you could just go under the radar. Or maybe would you even begin to deny what you thought the Bible once taught just so you can hold on to your job? I think it's easy for us to be critical of the slave owners here, and they deserve our criticism. But I wonder how many of us would act differently if we were in the same situation. If our livelihood was being threatened, would we be more concerned about our livelihood than we would be with the truth or with others? In fact, I wonder how many of us even now have compromised our Christian beliefs simply because of the love of money. How many of us in this room have cut corners at work ethically in order to make a few more dollars? Or how many of us have kept silent about our actual beliefs in the workplace just because we want to keep our seat at the table of influence and wealth? Or how many of us have morphed our beliefs on what we thought the Bible once taught just because we want to keep the paychecks coming? Listen, as evidenced by this passage, the temptation to pursue money over Christ is not a new one. But what we need to remember this morning is that true joy and true contentment will never come from money. It does not matter if you win the lottery It does not matter if you have $44 billion to buy a social media company. It does not matter how much money you have. Because true joy and true contentment is not found in money. It's found in Jesus Christ. Jesus is greater than money. But he's also, and this is the third area we see in this passage, he's also greater than our safety and security. Now, after the slave owners accused Paul and Silas of disturbing the peace and advocating customs that were against Roman law, Things get pretty ugly pretty quickly for Paul and Silas. Look at verses 22 to 24. The crowds joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So Paul and Silas are wrongly accused of disturbing the peace. To make matters worse, they are then illegally beaten with rods and thrown into prison and put in the stocks. Now, I say illegally because it was illegal to beat Roman citizens with a rod. Now, there are sometimes very rare exceptions made to that, but exceptions were never made without a fair hearing, which does not take place here. So what happens here in Acts 16 is not only tragic and sad to see, it is also illegal. It's against the law. It's a miscarriage of justice. And yet, despite being beaten with rods, despite being treated unjustly, notice how Paul and Silas respond. This is verse 25. This is the passage Jim alluded to earlier. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, here's the thing. If you were beaten with rods, and you were unjustly thrown in prison, and accused of something that you didn't do, How would you respond? Would you respond with joy and worship? Or would you respond with bitterness and complaining? If I'm honest, I'm not sure I would have been singing hymns and praying at midnight. It's likely I would have been feeling sorry for myself, or I've been thinking of a legal strategy to get my way out of jail, or I just would have plain been grumbling. The fact that Paul and Silas were singing and praying at midnight tells us something about them. Furthermore, the fact that Paul and Silas give no apology for their expulsion of the demon, instead they willingly take the beating, that tells us something too. Namely, they valued faithfulness to Christ more than they valued their own safety. And I think in our modern world, this is something that's hard for us to consider. One of our good friends in Kentucky is jokingly referred to as safety mom by her family, and they always give the trumpet noise too. And listen, I get it. Compared to how my parents parented me, both Tanya and I are safety parents also. Some of that's good. I think in past generations, maybe we've been a little bit naive about the darkness of the world. So I'm all for protecting our kids and keeping them safe as much as we can. I'm also in favor of avoiding unnecessary risk for both adults and children alike. For example, I wear my seatbelt. But hear this, as Paul and Silas remind us in this passage, Jesus is more important than our safety. He is greater than our safety. It's okay for us to put ourselves in a little danger in order to follow Christ. For example, it's okay if we go on a mission trip to a country that's a little bit dicey. It's okay to proclaim Christ if it puts us in the crosshairs of some powerful people. It's okay if one day our kids move overseas to be missionaries in a country that's hostile to the gospel and it may even cost them their life. It's okay because Jesus is greater than our safety. Along a similar line, we're also reminded of this passage, and this is the fourth area. Now, Jesus is also greater than our freedom. Now, two really interesting things happen with Paul and Silas and their freedom in this passage. The first takes place in verses 25 to 28. Verse 25, we read this. About midnight, Paul and Silas are praying, singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. So, Do you notice what happens here? Paul and Silas have a chance to escape, but they don't do it. Why? In this instance, they saw a gospel opportunity with the jailer. Now, to be fair, there are certainly other instances in the book of Acts where Paul and his companions have a chance to gain freedom, and they try to do so. But here, for the sake of the gospel, they forsake their freedom in order to share Christ with this Philippian jailer. And somehow, they're able to convince their fellow prisoners not to escape either, which is probably the most incredible part of the passage. Now, that's the first interesting thing that happens with Paul and Silas's freedom. The second interesting thing actually happens in verses 35 to 40. We're going to skip over a few verses that we will come back to in just a second because there's a theme of freedom that appears again in verses 35 to 40. Verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia and when they'd seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So in verses 35 and 36, the magistrates come to the decision, we need to let Paul and Silas go. But when they come to let them go, Paul and Silas refuse. Knowing that they've been unlawfully treated as Roman citizens, they demand a public release and a public apology. So they had a chance to just escape and to go again and again. They don't go, instead they say, nope, we're gonna stay till we get our apology. Now they likely did this for a couple reasons. First, by asserting their rights as Roman citizens, they were likely protecting other Christians in Philippi who might be treated in the same way. Second, they were also showing a concern for the reputation of the church's mission. If Paul and Silas were seen as lawbreakers and scoundrels, some might call into question the work of the church. So by forcing a public release and a public apology, they're protecting not only their brothers and sisters in Christ, but also the reputation of the church's work. Be that as it may, the point is, in both the first instance, when they don't leave jail, and the second instance, when they refuse to be released, Paul and Silas clearly valued, their, clearly valued Christ more than their freedom, which again raises the question, would we do the same? If you had to choose between going to jail or being faithful to Christ, which would you choose? Now, it's one thing to say you value Christ more than your freedom. but When the prospect of actually being thrown into jail and being put in a cell with a guy named Brutus becomes reality, then you start to realize, okay, this might be a little scary. Right? Listen, all of us would say, oh yeah, Jesus is more important than freedom. But when it comes down to it, would we really be willing to go to jail and stay in jail if it meant being faithful to Christ? For Paul and Silas, the answer is yes. Yes, we will. We will go to jail and we will stay there if we have to because Christ matters more. And listen, that's the encouragement of this passage, that Jesus is better than even our freedom. It's better to be imprisoned for Christ and for the cause of Christ than to be a slave to our own selfish desires. Jesus is greater than freedom. But fifth, we also see this, Jesus is greater than our sin, So in verse 27, the Philippian jailer is about to kill himself. Under Roman law, a jailer would be held responsible up to the penalty of death if prisoners escaped under his watch. So given the earthquake and the fact that the jail has now been set free or people, the prisoners have been set free, the prison, or the prison guard assumes that they've all escaped. And so in his mind, the noble course of action is, I just need to take my own life. But Paul intervenes and he assures the jailer, no, we're all still here. It's in this moment that the jailer is deeply moved. Perhaps he'd been listening to Paul and Silas sing hymns and pray, and something about their praying and singing got his attention. Or maybe the earthquake had alerted, to, alerted him to the fact that God is doing something here. But either way, God clearly opens his eyes, and in this moment he asks the question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now maybe this is obvious, but let me go ahead and say this on the record. This is a really important question. In fact, this question, I would argue, is at the heart of every religion in the world. What must I do to be right with God? What must I do to experience life eternally? What must I do to be saved? Now, to oversimplify things, I would say this. Every other religion in the world, except Christianity, answers that question by saying, you must do good things. You must be a good person to be right with God. You must be religious to have eternal life. You must perform religious deeds in order to be saved. But that is not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is not that you must do something, but rather that Christ has done something. Listen again to the response of Paul and Silas in verse 31. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved. Not, be a good person, and you'll be saved. Not, be more religious and you'll be saved. Not, be circumcised or be baptized, then you can be saved. No, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And the offer is not just for you, it's for your household too, it's for anyone who will believe in Jesus Christ. Hear this, our works can never overcome the debt of sin that we owe. Our religion will never be enough to save us from the penalty of our sin. But Jesus is greater than our sin. Because on the cross, he defeated sin. He canceled the record of death that stood against us. He nailed it to the cross so that we bear it no more. Three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering death. And if anyone comes to him in saving faith, they can be saved. Because Jesus is greater than our sin. He conquered our sin. He paid the punishment we deserve to pay. But lastly, in terms of areas in this passage, we see the supremacy of Christ. We see one last one. And that's this, Jesus is greater than cultural barriers. Look at what happens immediately after Paul and Silas shared the good news with the jailer. Verses 32 to 34. Verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, if ever there was a picture of the gospel crossing barriers, surely it's this one. A Roman jailer washing the wounds of his Jewish Christian prisoners. And then afterwards, sharing a meal around his family table. The same jailer that had put their feet in the stock not all that long ago, in fact, maybe that same day, is now the one tending to their wounds and sharing a meal with them. It's a powerful picture of the uniting work of the gospel of Jesus Christ, how it brings people together across cultural and social boundaries. But hear me, this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. Think about the people that are impacted most by the gospel in Acts 15. The wealthy businesswoman Lydia, who we looked at last week, she comes to faith in Christ. The demon-possessed slave girl set free from her oppression. The Roman jailer hearing the good news about Jesus and coming to saving faith. As Bible scholar John Stott points out, there are few people more diverse ethnically, socially, psychologically, and culturally than Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer. And yet, Paul engaged all of them with the gospel that was intended for all. Now listen, I understand in the last couple of years we've been having a lot of conversations in our culture about what divides us culturally, racially, socioeconomically, and those discussions are probably much needed but in light of some of the unhealthy directions that those conversations have gone, even in the church, let us never forget this one thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the one thing that you can unite people across all barriers. Because Jesus is greater than our cultural barriers. As evidenced by the jailer's table, Jesus brings people together who otherwise would have nothing in common. And praise God that he does. So let's be clear here. Jesus is greater than the spiritual forces of darkness. He's greater than money. He's greater than safety and security. He's greater than our freedom. He's greater than our sin. He's greater than cultural barriers. Or perhaps to say it more simply, Jesus is greater. He's greater than anything this world can offer. He's greater than everything else. But here's the one question that remains this morning Do we actually believe that equation is true? Now, it's one thing to say we believe Jesus is greater. But do we actually believe that? And are we actually living like that's true? Now, here's the trick in asking those questions. Most of us know the answer should be yes. So we kind of give ourselves a pass and assume our answer is yes, because if we're honest, asking the question is kind of hard. But I don't want to assume that just because we know the answer should be yes, that means the answer is yes. So let me just give you a few questions to evaluate your own life in terms of whether you're actually living as if Jesus is greater. So one evaluative question is this. Would your family say that you live like Jesus is greater than everything else? Parents, let me ask it this way. If I were to pull your kids aside and ask them, what are your mom and dad most passionate about? What would be their answer? By the way, let's assume in that scenario they have to tell the truth right? They don't have to give me an answer because I'm the pastor. Oh, Jesus. No, they have to tell the truth. Let's just imagine there's a scenario where some madman is holding a gun to their head and saying, what are your parents most passionate about? Now, that would be a really crazy madman, right? But if they're doing that and they had to give the one answer that could rescue them, what are they most passionate about? What would they say? And by the way, what you say you're most passionate about and what you're actually most passionate about, usually your kids know. They know what you're most passionate about. So what would they say you're most passionate about? Teenagers, let me flip the equation on you for a second. If your parents had to tell the truth about you and what you're most passionate about, what would they say about you? Are you most passionate about Christ or if you're honest, is it something else? Here's the thing. It's easy to give lip service to Christ, especially on Sunday mornings. But at the end of the day, your family usually knows what you're most passionate about because they see how you actually live. So that's one evaluative question. Here's the second. Would your non-believing friends and acquaintances say that you live like Jesus is greater than everything else? Again, it's one thing to talk about Jesus on Sunday or Wednesday, but if I were to pull your coworkers and ask them, well, what are they most passionate about? Or if I were to ask your classmates if you're in school, what is this person most passionate about? Again, what would they say? Do they know you're most passionate about Christ? Is it obvious by the way you live that Jesus is your one consuming obsession? Or would they say, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, they they say they're a Christian, but really they seem more passionate about this. One last evaluated question. If you're honest about your own heart, would you say that Christ is your greatest passion? When you lie in bed at night, what do you think about most? When you daydream during sermons, I'm just saying this theoretically, I'm sure you never do this, but if you daydream during sermons, where does your mind tend to drift? What gets you most excited in life? What is it that you find yourself talking about the most? I would suspect that those things would indicate what you're actually most passionate about. Are you actually most passionate about Christ? Or if you're honest, is it something else? Now listen, if the answer is, I don't know if it is Christ, here's the good news. It's not too late to flip the equation. In fact, I'm convinced the more we study about Jesus and the Word, the more we read passages like this one, the more we talk about Christ with others, the more we pray for the Spirit to give us a greater love for Christ, the more we see Christ at work in our own life. I'm convinced that as those things happen, we will increasingly agree with the most important equation there ever has been, that Jesus is greater than everything else. It's not too late to flip the equation. Church, I know it's easy to pursue other things. I did it for the first 19 years of my life, and I can definitely slip back into that mode on more occasions than I'm willing to admit. But this morning, I just want to remind you of the one simple equation. Jesus is greater. And because he's greater, we should live like we believe that to be true. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that we would believe with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind that Jesus is greater than everything else. That we would say the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord makes everything else rubbish in comparison. Oh Lord, we pray that we would believe this to be true and that we would live accordingly. Help us to live like people who believe Jesus is greater. And help us to do this for your glory and for our own joy. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen.